In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. As a 15-year-old, when you're also dealing with puberty and you're dealing with the rebelliousness that comes from being that age, well, at that point, it almost felt kind of good, right? There was almost this, like, you know, there was a, there was this feeling of, I am so fucked up that there's a medical term for it. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I am Dr. Roger McFilland. First of all, I want to thank our listening audience. Past few weeks, uh, we were in the top 10, Kel, on the Apple charts. I know. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, health and fitness. We, we were in the top 10 and we went to as high as number two on the mental health charts. Yesterday, we were trending on the global charts, debuting at number 14. Amazing. I can't believe it. We're, uh, we are on the Apple charts in like the UK, South Korea, Uganda, Saudi Arabia, Greece, Malaysia, Jamaica, Peru. You're, you're global now. Yeah, we're going to have to definitely do a tour over yeah. there. Try telling my wife that. It's probably <laughs> not going to happen. It speaks, though, to, I think, a lot of what is, what is happening. And I think there's a global awakening on a fairly large scale uh, around the pharmaceutical companies. And I think um, this is occurring, this growth, impartially due to the willingness of our listeners to subscribe to our podcast and share the episodes. So I encourage everyone who is a fan, please rate the podcast with five stars and comment. This really does help improve the circulation of our podcast. We're still relatively young in the podcast world, um, but I believe this is part of a global movement. Uh, there's a lot of time that's put into this, and I think we do provide really valuable research-based information too to just inform the general public and our guests have been amazing. I mean, today we have a fascinating, fascinating story and incredible guest, but unfortunately I, I need to open up with a little bit of disheartening news that I've been uh, fairly open about on, on, on social media. And this is the first time I'm getting behind the microphone. The FDA just approved the drug, uh, Lexapro. I think it's, uh, acetylaropram or something like that that's the branding yeah um for children as young as seven for mm. anxiety oh great so, okay so but here we go again yeah but i want to let you get some insight into the clinical trial that led to it being approved astonishingly 9.5 percent of the kids who took the drug became suicidal and that's in comparison to only 1.5% in the placebo group. That's a six-fold increase. A six-fold increase in suicidality. And this is for children as young as seven. And do you know what the conclusion drawn by the academics who were, without a doubt, paid by... Paid the by the pharmaceutical companies. Yeah. This, is the, this is the conclusions. Lexapro is well-tolerated in pediatric patients with generalized anxiety disorder. 
The authors also misrepresented the data in their conclusions because none of the six secondary outcomes were statistically significant compared to placebo. And in the main, the primary outcome measure was so small, negligible, between the placebo group and the drug group, which basically means this, that children and adolescents exposed to Lexapro are more likely to become suicidal than to experience an improvement in anxiety. So I pontificated on this in my most recent Substack newsletter. You can subscribe for free at drmcfillin.substack.com or you can go to our website, drmcfillin.com. We cannot consent unless we're informed and that brings me to our guest, who I, I feel like I'm an expert on Brookseam. <laughs> I just got through a, a two-week deep dive on everything Brooke. Yeah, um, I must have watched like four hours of video just all <laughs> over the place. In fact, I, I feel her mom is like related to me. And I want to ask, ask about mom who's just Oh my amazing. God, I was thinking of my mom on the podcast. I wonder if she do that. <laughs> um, Brooke seems she's an award-winning chef and writer. The book in, that we're going to be talking about today is May Cause Side Effects. It's powerful it's artfully constructed memoir on her experience with antidepressant withdrawal you may know her as food network chopped champion i know you're a big fan of chopped. i love Kelly. cooking you are I love cooking you are a great chef um and and we watched it for the first time the episode um you know so i was reading the i was reading the book and you know i'm sitting on my couch and she drops the I was just going to say, that's the one thing I would have never done. I wouldn't have dropped the soft shell crab. She drops the soft shell crab. And, you wouldn't have. <laughs> and I'm reading the book and I go, oh no, Brooke, even though I know the outcome that she won. And so then I went and, then I went and downloaded the episode and watched the whole thing. Um, so you might know her from Chopped. Uh, it, it, that's an awesome show. Uh, she was also named one of Zagat's 30 Under 30 in 2014. Um, I personally find her to be courageous and knowledgeable, uh, an advocate against over-pathologizing and prescribing of psychiatric drugs, and honestly has obtained more knowledge than many of the docs I know regarding antidepressant withdrawal and how to safely de-prescribe. Her work has appeared in the Washington Post, uh, Eating Well Magazine, Esquire, The Rumpus, New York Post, Fast Company, and more. I also love her Substack which I definitely want to get into. Happiness is a skill. You have to check her out. Brooke Seam, welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. Hello. Hello. Uh, Thank you for having me. Well, you know, I was saying before you came on that I feel like I know you because you read someone's memoir. It's like you're brought into their world. Um, that's got to be kind of strange for you after you put yourself out there so vulnerably and then you, like strangers can come up to you and like feel like they're connected to you in some way. It, you know, it's become normal for me and it's almost more confusing to me when I realize other people are not that open. Um, because when you share the most difficult aspects of your life publicly in the way I have, you kind of just don't care about really like, honestly, what else is there? Like, here, I, don't, I don't ask me any question you want. Somebody asked me today, like, you know, I don't have kids. At this point, someone asked me if I wanted to have kids. And then they were like, oh, my God, I'm sorry. That's so personal. And I was just like, 
you've literally read my book. Who cares? <laughs> right? It doesn't matter. And so I, yeah, I, I actually struggle more on the opposite side, I feel like, because I'm like, well, where's your memoir? Why don't I get to understand this thing that really makes you tick because I, I want to know you don't want to cheating that you get to know it I don't you don't want to read Roger's memoir it's dark <laughs> well I'll sit with my so <laughs> I'll sit with my clients sometimes like when I meet them for the first time in an evaluation I'm like any questions you have for me professionally personally I'm an open book yeah. and then I realize Brooke you really are an open book yeah literally <laughs> I'm not I mean, really an open book it's so much easier in so many ways. I think that, um, you know, there are actually a few aspects of, it's interesting because the book took me five years to write. So I was writing, I would, I would write really hard for a couple months, put it away, write hard for a couple months. And then there was, you felt like years of the art of it, of the craft and editing. And so there were things that were pulled out, things that I didn't have in there, things that at the time I didn't, you know, maybe I didn't feel comfortable sharing or things that I didn't feel um, I knew enough about to really be able to back up. And, and, and now I've learned so much more about it. I've kind of worked through so much of the emotion on my own end that I'm a lot more comfortable talking about that. And one of the things I've seen that's come up a lot is, you know, the PSSD aspect. I didn't talk about that at all in my book, but it's definitely something that, that's affected my life. And I'm, I'm at the point now where I'm like, all right, I'm start, ready to start talking about this a little bit too. That's kind of, for me, been the really the last, you know, frontier, the post-SSRI sexual dysfunction aspect of this, because that is where like women go to die in shame, right? So that's the one thing that I feel like I haven't talked about a lot. But other than that, I mean, it's just everything I put out there is what happened. It's what happened to me. And I am lucky that I have had the support both from professionals and from my friends and family to work through it in a way where I can talk about it from the scar and not the wound. And these stories are powerful. They're a powerful way to, to learn. And I think when we, when we consider the general medical landscape, we're not getting this information from our prescribers. So these stories are powerful. You're doing amazing work. I first want to get your thoughts on Lexapro. I did open up with that and you were, prescribed these drugs at a very vulnerable and young age, age mm -hmm. 15. This is being prescribed for seven-year-olds with anxiety. I just want to get your quick thoughts. Uh, I, I said this in a comment on Instagram the other day. Um, I wasn't seven and it wasn't Lexapro. I was 15 and it was Effexor and Wilbuterin and it's still fucked up my development on a range of issues that I couldn't predict very, 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 very much. So I was 15. I mean, like, I didn't have agency in the situation and I did, right? I mean, I was in a position where there was a conversation, you know, what do you feel like? Do you feel like you would want to go on antidepressants? And I was, it was, I was 15. It was 2001. There was far fewer, you know, resources and information than there is now. But at some point, you know, no one was pulling my mouth open every morning and pouring these drugs down my throat. Like I was on some level a willing participant. Granted, I was influenced from, you know, the, the doctors, the professionals that were giving me information and my father had just died. So there was grief involved and my mother was grieving and she didn't know any better either. And I wanted to, you know, I was taught to listen to doctors and respect institutions. So why wouldn't I do what they say? Right. But when you're seven, like someone is more or less literally putting this stuff down your throat. I mean, we are literally opening up these capsules and mixing it into applesauce for kids. So we have 
they have so much less agency and there's no long-term studies on this for adults, let alone children. The Lexplo clinical trial was eight weeks and it doesn't look good. I, I just, it's already bad enough that it was approved for 12 year olds to then just back that up and say, okay, a seven year old. And I just, I, I mean, like I, I am, it's making me emotional because we are just, we are disabling a generation and it might not look like we are, it might not because, you know, they're able to sit in class and they're able to, you know, get a B on their test or do whatever thing we want them to do. But we have no idea what we are doing to their hearts and their spirits and their souls and their future uh, mental, physiological, spiritual health by screwing with them that early. And it pisses me off. If you're willing, I'd like to go back to that time when you were prescribed these drugs, if you can kind of paint the picture for our audience, the context of, you know, what your life was like at that time. Sure. So I grew up in Reno, Nevada. So we were in Reno when this all happened. And my father suddenly, suddenly died. He was kind of there one minute and gone the next. And my mom and I were abroad at the time we were, we were visiting some family. And so we got a call in the middle of, well, it was the afternoon at that point. It was like five o'clock and my grandfather said, you have to come home. So we went, you know, we, we had to get from Italy to Reno and, you know, on whatever flight would have us. And then we showed up, we got to the hospital. He was, he was, um, unresponsive, you know, in a coma and that was just it. And then a few days later he died. And that was on July 3rd, uh, 2001. And I was between my freshman and sophomore year of high school. And is that right? Yeah. And um, so, you know, I was I was a very serious ballet dancer. I was used to following the rules, doing what the adults told me to do, striving for perfection and ease and making everything look effortless. And I was extremely stoic. And so I knew how to, I knew how to deal with pain. I mean, I didn't have any toenails from ballet. That wasn't the issue, right? So I stuffed everything. I want to even know if I stuffed everything. It was just, you know, in retrospect, I think I was in shock. And that lasted for, you know, long enough to be concerning to the adults around me. And so I was kind of, at some point, the idea that we needed to go see the child psychologist was floated. And I know I really didn't want to go. I fought that one and I went to her and she broke my trust in the very first meeting and I refused to talk to her from that point on. She, I had shared something with her and she basically told me what I was feeling wasn't real. And, uh, I just said, you know, I knew I was like, well, this is bullshit. And so I, I just didn't respond. <laughs> and eventually after, you know, a handful of sessions, she called my mom and said, you're wasting your time with a psychologist. What she really needs is a psychiatrist. I'm diagnosing an anxiety and depressive disorder and recommending medication. And so then my mom did what she thought was the right thing. And she took me to the psychiatrist that was recommended. And I sat with him for 10, 15 minutes. He said, looks like you're having a hard time. Let's see if we can help with that. And he started trying different psychiatric drugs. Now, this was, again, 2001. The landscape of what drugs are available to children was different then. Um, I'm quite sure we, we uh, tried Prozac 
and because that was the only one I think that was a, a approved for children at the time. Um, and then the other one might've been Zoloft. I know we tried at least two that I had obvious physical reactions to. And so we kind of just ditched those right away. And so I ended up on a combination of Effexor XR and Wellbutrin XL, which did not produce immediate physical side effects. Interestingly, neither one of those still is approved for use in children today, but or teens, but we did that. And then I stayed on those drugs and we added on some other ones as the years went by because I developed physical symptoms. Um, I had a thyroid problem. Um, I developed something called bile reflux disease, which is sort of like gastric reflux, but deeper down in your system. So we just started piling on other drugs. So by the time I was old enough to vote, I was on about six different prescription drugs. And then I stayed on that same cocktail of drugs for the next, uh, until I was 30. And they were generally unquestioned and unmonitored by every doctor I went to in that period of time. So your, your, your father died suddenly. I, I think what I read yeah. was that he was going to have surgery for an ulcer possibly. And it found out that he had pancreatic cancer. Yes, exactly. So he had, we didn't, well, we're, we think he didn't know that he had pancreatic cancer. There's a bit of a question there that maybe he had known something. He did a couple things that were a little odd for someone who didn't think they might die. But um, as far as we knew, <laughs> he knew nothing. And he just had some pain in his stomach and he went through all the ulcer tests. And finally they said, we're just going to go in there and you know, fix it. And when they got in there, there was a grapefruit size mass of pancreatic cancer that he never came out of the hospital from. So just, just context. When did you go see the, the child psychologist? Because listen, your, your memoir is so beautifully written that I want to be careful here that it doesn't come across as being sensationalized, right? This is a, this is a human life. This is your vulnerable raw experience and it's way too familiar for me as a as a clinical psychologist so context wise when did you end up seeing the psychologist it was within a year of my dad's death okay the timeline exactly is fuzzy in everyone's memory and the medical records have long since been destroyed but i remember i i want to say it was probably within four to six months of him dying because i distinctly remember that there were no branches or there are no leaves on the branches. So my dad died in July. And if we were into winter time, then it would have been about four to six months based on the seasons in uh, Reno. Which is really important because you're experiencing expected grief. You're an only child. Your mom is grieving. Mm -hmm. There's I can only imagine we lost our fathers around this around the same time. I was just nine years older than you. So it's different how generationally speaking, and, and I lost my dad young and suddenly didn't expect it. So generationally, there's like some differences here because of where you were as a 15 year old in this drug era. But when I was in 15, I was in the early nineties, we didn't yet really enter into it. So mm -hmm. I would have never viewed what I was feeling, which is probably similar to what you were experiencing. There was a detachment and numbness and grief for more than a year that never really goes away. It just evolves, it changes, because mm -hmm. you, you lose your father, you lose somebody close to you, that's always something that's gonna be missing. But when you're at the vulnerable age of 15, there are 
heroes and there are villains in this memoir, right? Because it kind of reads that way. And you're the first villain for me. And honestly, I had to put it down and walk away because I am a psychologist. And that first villain, is it Dr. Sanders? Was that yep. her name? A child, um, child psychologist, I believe. Yep. She immediately invalidated your experience. Mm-hmm. So like, I, I don't even, I can't even begin to fathom sitting across a young girl who just lost her father and mm-hmm. then invalidating you right away. You shut down and her interpretation mm-hmm. of, of that is that what you're going through is, is so s- serious or severe that you require medical intervention. Go see a psychiatrist. Yep. Yeah. And let's, let's, let's get, we have time. So let's, let's do details here. Um, so what had happened was that, again, the context of this is that I was a very serious ballet dancer and the body is your paintbrush. And so I wanted to manipulate my body so it would do what I wanted it to do and look the way I wanted it to look. And that was manifesting in eating disorder tendencies. Um, To this day, I am not convinced that had this gone unchecked, it would have devolved into something dangerous. Like I, especially now knowing myself, I've spent uh, my whole life in athletics and I've been in, I'd say three or four different bodies. And I use food as the, the, the food is the paint, if you will. It is how, it is how I manipulate the tool, (laughs) um, to do what I wanted to do, whether or not I need to be bigger, smaller, longer, leaner, whatever it is, like it starts with food. And, but I was also 15 and, you know, there was control issues there. I mean, my father literally just died. So what started happening is that I dropped a little bit of weight in order to look the way I wanted to for the art form I was trying to create. That became concerning to my mother. Understandably, she's already in a place of grief and fear. She had said to me, I, you know, I've already lost one person in my family. I can't bear to lose two. And so she took me to the child's child psychiatrist in part because of the eating disorder tendencies. And when I got there, again, I'm a people pleaser. I had also done enough research, literally gone to a bookstore because remember those and sat down with the DSM in a big fat book on a chair in Borders books, which is dating my age. And I sat there and I read everything about eating disorders and all of these things. And I kind of knew I was like, I don't really meet this criteria, but like, okay, fine. And so I went and I sat there and I said, look, you know, I can see that I might have some eating disorder tendencies. These are all the things that I do. I was open about it. I told her and she said to me, I have another client who only eats white things, white rice, white potatoes, white bread. That's a real eating disorder. And that was it. That was the moment I was like, you and I are done. And then I just sat there and glared at her for the next, I don't know, six sessions. And ironically, what happened is that because of that, me being competitive and intense and in a state of like, you know, nothing matters because people die at 15, I was like, I'll show you. And that's when the eating disorder developed into something real. So that's what happened there. Yeah. And, and certainly it makes sense for everything you're going through. You know, as you well know, an eating disorder can at least allow you to feel like you have some control over your mm-hmm. life. And so much control mm-hmm. was taken away from you. 
So we would certainly see that as maybe an expected coping reaction for somebody who was really struggling in the way that you were struggling. So the way that that was kind of misinterpreted, misrepresented and communicated, it's almost like she's the major villain in my mind because if she responded differently to you, it could have changed the whole trajectory. And this is what I unfortunately see way too often in clinical practice is the worst of my profession, the least educated, the least talented, the least empathic, drive the most people down this route to mm-hmm. a drug because they don't understand the human condition. They don't mm-hmm. understand the experience. It almost feels, Brooke, like we've lost our collective like empathy and connection to understanding what is normal to just be in a body and to mm-hmm. live this life. Life is is painful. And the lack of empathy that she communicated for such a vulnerable young age for someone who lost her father is just, I think it's, it's heartbreaking. But it, I think it's representative of some of the lessons we have to learn from this era in, in mental health is pushing people to some idea of a quick fix and communicating that they are broken. So that leads to my next question is how did you then interpret what you were going through? And I know this is going, this is going back to being a teenager, but you're now you're pushed into the medical side of this mm-hmm. for something that I just feel is quite normal, mm-hmm. what you were experiencing. How did, how did that shift for you about how you were viewing what was going on within you? I think the fact that I was a teenager is very important. And it, it, it also harkens back to you know, the seven-year-olds on Lexpro, right? Uh, Because when you're seven, you are the, you are the makeup of everyone around you and everything you're learning from the people around you. When you're 15, you are all of those things you were at seven. So you're all the things that other people have made you to be and imparted on you. And at the same time, you're, when you're at the point where you're starting to question those things and say, okay, well, what, who, who am I? You know, what is my personality? And then you're also right in the middle of puberty. So it's just, you know, it's not a great time anyway. But when I was, when I was, you know, given these labels, when I was told that, you know, I had depression and anxiety and that they were no different from a diabetic who has, you know, who, need, who needs insulin and it was a, not my fault and all of these stop the stigma, stigma things. What that actually did was tell me that I did not have the power, agency, or innate ability to change my situation and to therefore change the world around me because, well, it's not your fault if you're born with type 1 diabetes. So if it's the same thing here, if there's a, you know, if it's genetic or a chemical imbalance or any of these things that I get told and everybody gets told, well, then why try to change it? Because I'm already immediately going to be working against nature and you know, yeah. what power do I have there? That was the message that was said both through words and through actions. Now you take that even a step further and okay, the seven-year-old, well, they're just going to internalize that immediately. Right? So now they're just, they have something wrong with them and their whole world is through that lens. Right? As a 15-year-old, when you're also dealing with puberty and you're dealing with the rebelliousness that comes from being that age, well, at that point, it almost felt kind of good, right? There was almost this like, you know, there was a, there was this feeling of, I am so fucked up that there's a medical term for it. 
and I deserve that. And I want, like, it made me feel special and it made me feel like I had an excuse to be morose and dark and to, you know, listen to obnoxious music because I was, I was really so fucked up. A doctor said I was right. And that was such an insidious thought process to have put into me that, that, that went on like well into my twenties and really didn't really, I think frankly, didn't really lift until I finally got off all these drugs and started to have to re re retrain myself and learn a new story. But it was just, it was so beneficial. God, nothing was my fault. I didn't have to care about anything. If, you know, if my job wasn't going the way I wanted or my experience, I didn't like it. Well, whatever. It wasn't my fault. It was somebody else's fault. I had, there was no reason for me to have personal responsibility or, or agency at all. But that was something that developed over time. And it's just that the seed was planted early on. I mean, one of the key points and what I loved when I was watching everything about you is the idea of agency. You bring it up so often and I'm a teacher and I, I do my best to, to get these kids to understand that that is the single most important thing that you have to embrace. You do not want to self-reliance, you know, rely on yourself. It's okay. But one of the key points you discuss um, with adolescents, particularly adolescents, is how many things they actually go through, particularly to gain success in this current education system, get A's, get all this stuff. So when I teach, I see this all the time. And I can tell you the moment any of these teens experiences any kind of grief or any kind of negative emotion, an immediate reaction from everyone is, well, maybe they're depressed. Maybe they, they, they might have a problem. You should go see a doctor. And mm -hmm. so again, everybody just listens. And most of these kids though, they actually don't want to discuss what's going on. They just kind of yeah. want to live their lives and be left alone. And they want to try to figure things out. They want to learn how to cope with it. But, mm -hmm. but we cut that off. They need time. And instead, we don't allow time. We tell them, oh, you have a problem. How, how did we get to this point where human emotions are so pathologized and there's such a vigilance towards like your, your emotions as something is really wrong with you? Marketing. Money. The pharmaceutical companies really have been powerful in this regard in shaping generations because that's we we're one of only i think two countries that receive direct-to-consumer advertising and that's the power of the yeah. some of these messaging like that chemical imbalance idea were you told the that you had a chem i'm sorry the other is new zealand were you told that you had a chemical imbalance out of curiosity absolutely yeah which is which is insane because it's clear that you were, you were grieving at that particular time. So, I mean, that's just a level of insanity that's unable for me to, to grasp. I mean, I had a conversation with a psychiatrist about two months ago who told me that depression and grief are not connected. <laughs> and like, I, I, he said they're different. And I asked him how. I said, how do you measure it? Well, I couldn't answer that. And then he's like, because, you know, Depression is persistent. It happens after, you know, it starts after a specific period of time. And I just, I, I was like, are you, are you seriously telling me that, like, if you lose your father or a partner, if, that you're done grieving after? Well, I mean, I think the DSM just completely eliminated the, uh, the grief, you know, the grief clause. But for at one point, I think when I was, when I was um, medicated, it was two weeks. 
That's yeah. if you are depressed because your dad died for more than two weeks, then well, you're clinically depressed. It's different than your grief. One is a pathological disorder. The other one is just, I don't know, normal, which if you look at the history of grief practices and bereavement, I mean, not that long ago, we were wearing black for a year. Yeah, it's such arbitrary bullshit. And, you know, we'd have to be able to call them out on this nonsense. And that's what's concerning to me over the past 30 years is we've continued to give the medical authority more and more power where they feel like they have to have all the answers. In psychiatry, they just make shit up. Like I spend my entire adult life trying to be able to understand the human experience in context and understand history and what does it mean to be human. And I interact in our medical system and they just make shit up. Right. Like where do, I could never just make shut up. Like, so they don't understand that the DSM, the Bible in which they're using, they don't understand. Listen, these aren't illnesses. These are some construct that were made by people sitting around a table. There's no science behind it. It's a scientific yeah. nightmare. So they, yeah. they use this DSM, you know, as if it's legitimate and they slap the label on you. It didn't seem like anyone really understood you at that time. Brooke, was there ever a plan? I mean, was there a plan to get you off the drug? Because there's a period that I didn't get from the book. You know, I know you so well because I read your book, but then there's a whole period of your life that I just don't, it's, I guess it's like college years. Which junk? Yeah. <laughs> I guess it's the college years. Yeah. Because, you know, you, you take us to going through the withdrawal, the hell that you were going through. And that's mm -hmm. our next transition point. But I am interested to know the period from when you provided these drugs until you make the decision to, to get off them, what life is like for you then? It's interesting you say that because one of my big creative choices was, one of the big creative choices when you're doing any sort of writing is what you leave in and what you take out. And in earlier drafts, there was much more robust context of what college was like or my early 20s. But at the end of the day, it really didn't matter because I kind of, in, in a lot of ways, it felt like the way it's read and it's written in the book. Because I think within the first 30 pages, I think you get my entire backstory in the first 30 pages. And then we're like, okay, we are here on the day that we are getting off the antidepressants after 15 years. And that's kind of how it felt to me. It was like, in my mind, there's before antidepressants and after antidepressants and everything in there is one literally very fuzzy and in some some ways very gone because I was having memory problems that were associated with the long-term use of these drugs plus the memory problems that occurred because of the trauma of losing my dad so it's like I really struggled with traditional talk therapy which I did try a little bit of because it was so rooted in like let's go back to this memory or what's the logic of it all and I'm just like I can't remember. It's not, it's literally not in my body. I mean, by the time I got off these drugs, I couldn't remember conversations I was having with my business partner the day before that was causing a lot of strife in our relationship. So let alone like, I don't know what I was feeling in the two weeks after my dad died. I, it's like, it's a, it, there's a chemical wall that was put up and I couldn't get through it. So the answer is like, I don't really know. I wasn't home. I did all the things I was supposed to do. I went to college. I got a degree. I drank too much beer. I kvetched about the situation. I would see a, I would see a psychiatrist once a year who would say, how you doing? And I'd say, fine. And then she'd just give me more drugs. Like, but there was no, 
I never took stock of the situation. I never looked around and said, am I thriving? Because I thought I was doing the best I could because in my view, from what I had been told and I understood, if I was as depressed as I was on antidepressants, well, then I sure as hell was probably going to be super depressed if I wasn't on them, right? It's in the name. I was taking antidepressants and I was still depressed. So I must be worse if I wasn't on them. So I kind of was just living the best life I thought I could. The fact that it wasn't great and I certainly wasn't thriving was something that never occurred to me because I was under the impression that I had been telling myself and because of the actions that had been told to me that I was limited in my ability to thrive. Because as, I had a chemical imbalance, so yeah, as if you had what I believed, you yeah. had this disease, and mm-hmm. you had to manage this disease for the rest yeah. of your life, and yeah, it, it was about coping, not curing. Yeah, now I can only imagine that um, taking these drugs, because I I know what you were experiencing before you went off them, created some degree of emotional numbing or blunting in mm-hmm. your life, right? Um, and because you started them so early, I think it's you know questionable whether you even knew the difference um, because yep. that's just all you know, right? Yeah. So was was what was life like um, on those drugs? Did you identify yourself just as a depressed person that requ- required this? And what was your emotional experience like in those years? <laughs> okay, so there is interesting you asked this. So um, there's a numbers are a running theme in my book. Right. And one of the, one of the early exercises that I had done to kind of just, I liked quanti, I still like quantifying things that feel unquantifiable because it makes me feel like I understand them more. So in about 2014, which was two, two, two years before I got off the antidepressants, um, I had calculated the day of my own death. Like I literally sat down one day and the general thought process was I like life sucks and then you die. That was my, that was, that was my theme. You could have put it on a pillow. That's the way I felt. And so I said, all right, well, when might I die? When might this be over? And so I took half, you know, a dozen life expectancy tests and I literally would take them from actuary tables and um, life insurance websites. And I went, I got the ones that were as, you know, deep as you could. I mean, they were asking me how many times a week I ate grilled meat, right? This wasn't some BuzzFeed test. And then I took all the results. So I had, you know, a smattering of results over a smattering of different dates and I averaged them. And then came up with a final date of, according to all of these data tables, what would be my date of death? And that was November 6, 2069, approximately, oh God, 83 years, I think, 86 years, 83, I think. Um, And so I had this number and somehow someone from Fast Company got wind that I did this and they interviewed me about it. And it's still on the internet, you can find it. And that one of the first things they asked me was how I defined myself because I never really said I was a pessimist, but I deeply identified with being a realist. And for me, through the lens that I was viewing the world, there was no way to be a realist without looking at the world and just saying like, well, this is shit. So I thought I was being balanced and like hanging out right in the middle. But what I didn't understand is that balance is dependent on where you sit on the scale. And I was very much sitting on the side of life sucks and then you die. So from my perspective, I was extremely balanced. You know, ice cream was delicious, but look at all the poverty. 
how can we be excited about the ice cream, right? That's kind of sort of how I viewed the world. And that was it. Like, but I also couldn't feel true joy. I couldn't feel gratitude or, you know, I thought I had moments of happiness, even while deeply medicated. And I realize now I didn't at all, but I was able to feel outrage and I could feel boredom. And that was mostly it. So very restricted range of emotions. And yeah, it doesn't lead to good things. It doesn't motivate you. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing that we know about these drugs is that there's this a, emotional blunting or numbing effect that is experienced in the majority of people that take them. Mm-hmm. And if you communicate that as antidepressant, right? Like mm-hmm. words are powerful. Language is powerful. Yeah. Antidepressant means like anti-feeling, right? And, and to mm-hmm. communicate it that way in our culture, you can see why there's some people who will still make claims like, oh, I need this drug to function. Or, mm-hmm. um, you know, some even make statements that, well, it saved my life. Mm-hmm. And I don't ever want to discount somebody who says something like this, um, because if you believe the drug saved your life, I'm pretty sure that it, you've probably manifested that into your reality. I mean, if you say Jesus mm-hmm. saved your life, or you say love saved your life, mm-hmm. or if you say this dog saved your life, like dog, I think yeah. that's what happens. Like that's what yeah. you believe that becomes your your reality. My concern is, communicating that as if it was the drug effect. And that's kind of the issue. Yeah. Uh, I mentioned like the first villain before, um, Dr. Sanders, unfortunately. There's some other villains in this story, but there are heroes. Um, I, I, I first want to, um, I, want, I first want to bring up your mom. Um, yeah. She comes across as very endearing in the book, yes. um, but also with this wisdom about her that seems to be connected spiritually to like almost a higher plane of consciousness mm-hmm. as if she was perfectly placed in mm-hmm. in your life to be able to do this work um I, I feel like she saved your life uh in some ways because of the way the that she communicated to you in your most difficult moments mm-hmm. and had a subtle way or not so subtle way of like completely shifting your reality in mm-hmm. some of what, what sounded like and felt like the most painful and hellish moments on earth. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a very good description of pretty much exactly what happened. And, you know, it's a, it's so interesting because, you know, I was a minor when these drugs were prescribed to me. So my mom had to sign off on it. She was part of this decision making process to put me on these drugs as well. And, you know, she and I have had hundreds of conversations about it at this point. And we both come to the conclusion that, you know, we did the best we could with the information we had at the time. And had we known better, we would have done better. We didn't. We knew what we knew. And so I have no resentment or ill will or frustrations or anger towards the fact that she had to be involved in this because this was... Our whole relationship is a joint effort and most of that, I mean, I I imagine we would have had a really good relationship if my dad didn't die, but a big part of it was that he did and it was just us. And so there was this unspoken kind of bond between us, even beyond just mother and daughter. Literally, we were in the San Francisco airport trying to get home before my dad died. And she said, it's just you and me, baby. And like, I felt that ever since. Oh, she's my favorite person. Um, And so everything we've done together since has been a joint effort. And we've always 
been able to talk and we've always been able to support each other. And, um, you know, I'm sure it's unbalanced because I get, you know, mom supports the kids more than kids sports the mom, but I try. Um, and so she, over the course of the year, started to question the antidepressants. And, you know, whereas I thought if I'm still this depressed on these antidepressants, then I would be so depressed and like unfunctional without them. She thought if these antidepressants were working, you wouldn't be feeling like you are. And that's a very different way to think about this. And so she started to question it, especially when the memory problems were coming in and I was visibly going downhill. I mean, when, you know, when the suicidal ideation was coming in and just feeling so normal to me, that's when I was, when she, she noticed and she was like, I think this is contributing to the problem, but it took me many years to actually be open to the idea that the drug I thought I was taking to combat my problem was actually potentially causing the problem. And it wasn't until I had other reasons to make that choice for myself and get off the drugs that I started being open to the idea of getting off of them. But she started questioning it many years before. And then when I went into withdrawal, you know, she picked up the phone every time I called and like that, I, if, if all parents got that, if, if, if that is all you do for your kid, I think that that is 80% of the battle, especially adult children who still need their mommy, right? We still need that. And if you have your kid and your parents are still around and just God, please pick up the phone for them. Let them know you can, they can talk to you because that is what made the difference for me. Brooke, I really do think you're, you're saving lives with your, your story. Um, so I, I do want to take it to the, some of the most darkest moments because that's some of the more compelling aspects of, of the book, which is your life. It's so weird because, you know, you almost, it, it's read like a novel, um, but it is your life and you're in front of me and I, I want to honor that. Um, what, you have, what you've experienced, I think if others can hear it and they mm -hmm. can understand that what you're going through is a, a side effect of, adverse reaction to to drugs and not necessarily a experience of their own mental illness which like they're told mm -hmm. are you able to just kind of communicate to us what you were experiencing at the time what stands out to me is you just at your window on the uh in, okay at the window yeah. as opposed to withdrawal all right so my whole book and the whole story really starts um i was just turned 30, about to turn 30. And because I'd calculated the day of my own death, I also calculated all sorts of other numbers. And one day I lived on the 30th floor of a Manhattan apartment building. And one day I was just, I had pushed my screen, the screen that was, you know, the bug screen, I'd pushed it out and I was holding it. And I'd like stuck my whole body out and I could see the patterns in the sidewalk and I could feel the wind come by and like take the screen and you know, I just decided like, all right, how long would it take to fall? And so I calculated that 5.58 seconds. I knew exactly how long if I just decided to push myself out, it would take to fall. And I did, there was no fear in that knowledge. In some ways it felt comfortable that I had that option. I didn't, it didn't occur to me to call the suicide hotline. It was not an alarm. It was something that had become so normal to me, this idea that I could kill myself at any time in a thousand different ways. And I just thought about it all the time. And because it was so 
insidious in the way it began, it never felt like an emergency. And so that's one of the things that I find really frustrating about the whole conversation around suicide is there's so much fear around the idea of like, oh my God, someone's going to hurt themselves that no one can talk about it in a way that's like, you know, again, what is the range of normal here? I would say normal is everyone's thought about it one way or another at some point in their life. I mean, the thing people talk about all the time, I see articles written about this as if it's, as if it's like an aside, you know, as if it's a weird thing, right? There was an article in my um, college magazine of all things about someone who was describing this great mental health crisis they had that started with the idea that they were driving on the highway and wondered what would happen if they drove off. I mean, to me, this is the most normal thing in the world. Who hasn't had that thought when you're going 80 miles an hour in a 2000 pound bullet and you're in full, full control? Like, is there anyone who's ever driven a car who hasn't thought that, right? And yet we're not allowed to say it out loud because if we do, we might be put on an involuntary psychiatric hold or we're worried that there's something mentally wrong with us. I mean, like, I like to rock climb. Sometimes I get to the top and think, oh my God, I could let go right now. And that would be it. It's the same thing. It's just a huge amount of fear. It's you're putting your body in a place that's not, it's not supposed to be there. We're not really supposed to be moving at 80 miles an hour in a 2000 pound bullet. We're also not supposed to be hanging out, you know, 60 feet high, right? Like our lizard brains just like, hello, <laughs> things are happening. Um, and yet, God forbid you say it out loud. And so I say this stuff out loud all the time now. And when I was in withdrawal, these thoughts got real bad and they got real scary in a way that I was like, this is, this is, this is terrifying. I hear a lot of women um, with postpartum intrusive thoughts that are very violent and very scary and bring so much shame that they don't feel like they could say it. And then their OB gives them an antidepressant, right? Like, I just don't think this is pathological. I think it's something coming up from inside you that's trying to make you alert to the situation that something's not quite right or you have to face a fear or deal with it. So that's what was happening to me when I was standing at my window. But I pulled myself in and I was like, well, that I just kind of it just dawned on me that that was an interesting thought and that maybe someone who's on this many antidepressants shouldn't be thinking like this. So then I started to get curious about that. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words, I was just thinking about you, may make their day. Thank you for listening.